Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 11, picking up at verse 38. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to understand your word, and that, Father, in hearing your word, we would just, we would not be those who turn away and forget it, but that we would be those who are hearers and doers. Lord, help us in this. Work your grace in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So last time I preached, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Jesus' grief, his grief, and the passage I'm preaching today begins with a restatement of the, this intensity of emotion and heaviness of spirit that Jesus was experiencing in light of the death of his friend, Lazarus. The passage begins, so Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. And previously, we, we learned that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and in troubled, it says. And that, of course, he wept. The Son of God wept at the uh, reminder of death, at the death of his friend. Now again, even after weeping, once when he's perhaps still weeping, he's again deeply groaning in the Spirit, now groaning within himself. And so you have to remember that. Jesus is getting close to the end of his work. Okay? Jesus is getting close to that time when he would, he would meet his own death. 
death on a tree. And we know that he would sweat blood as he pled with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Very intense, very weighty, um, just unimaginable depth of emotion and spirit. His spirit is heavy with the work that is quickly coming upon him. And that work, that work too, has to do with death. The death of his friends, perhaps even the sight of this, this grave site, causes uh, Jesus this outpouring of and contemplation of anguish. Calvin says, Christ approaches the tomb as a champion preparing for a contest. And we need not wonder that he groans as the violent tyranny of death, which he had to conquer, is placed before his eyes. So even though he's striding forth, he's about to do this miracle, right? He, he still is, is overcome with the weight of death that all of his people have and will die. We learn that the tomb, this tomb that they buried Lazarus in is a cave with a stone lying against um, or pushed uh, in front of its entrance. And Jesus now says something that would have been shocking in the midst of this mournful uh, scene, the, the grieving of those around him. That was going on. He asked that the casket, in a sense, be raised from the vault and opened up, right, out of the grave site. In this case, he asked that that stone be rolled away and, and, um, <clears throat> and that the entrance to this cave be open to uh, view. Remove the stone, he says. Can you imagine the eyes of everybody there shifting to him? Like, what did he just say? Remove the stone? I mean, it would be, it would just feel awkward. It would feel like the last thing that you would want to say at a burial site, right? Well, dig him up. The only person who responds to him is is Martha, who had been the first one to come to him and protested that he hadn't gotten there in time, right? Martha, who had heard him say that he was the resurrection and the life. Martha, who had affirmed that he was the one who came into the world, the Messiah. And she says to him, and you can imagine her sort of sidling up to Jesus and saying, he's been dead for stink. Lord, by this time there will there'll be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Can you imagine her saying this? It's, it's what no one wants to mention at a gravesite. She had to have said it under her breath so as not to be heard. But he was not deterred by her reminder, but responded with this hopeful statement, right? Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Did I not say to you, right? He's, he's like, he's going to stink. She's saying, he's going to stink. He's like, did I not say to you 
that you will see the glory of God. And we, must, we, we have to remember at this point, Jesus' delay getting to Bethany. Remember, he had stayed in the place where he was after he learned of Lazarus' sickness, and it was clearly his intent to allow the body of his friend to decay. That's why he stayed. He knew what was going on. He wanted that body to stink. He wanted that body to begin that breaking down. And why? Because it would confirm the miracle that he was about to perform. Those who moved away the stone would smell that decay. And they would confirm they smelled it even as they confirmed Lazarus walked forth from that tomb alive. I smelled it. You know, you can hear them testifying to it. Look, he was dead. He stank. I smelled it, and then he came forth, and his flesh was fine. When the soul leaves the body, when the soul leaves the body, the body immediately begins breaking down. Right? Some of you have seen, have been around loved ones when their soul has departed their body. And when their soul departs, it's within minutes where their body just looks different. Right? It's, it's, it's terrible. It's scary. The full weight of the death that came into the world by Adam's sin is demonstrated plainly at that. The aches and pains of the body during life demonstrate Adam's fall, but nothing as remarkable and fearful as the breaking down of the body when immediately after the soul departs. We have a hard time seeing an open casket, don't we? But it is a powerful lesson. Yes, it's even garish. It's garish, as it should be. It's a lesson about the ravages of sin and the holiness of God. That body, that body that is your loved one as much as the soul that departed from it decays not merely from a lack of oxygen and a lack of flowing blood, but from the corruption inherited by each one of us after Adam sinned against God by listening to the voice of his wife and eating from the fruits of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death from then until now. Unrelenting. Death unrelenting, but not omnipotent. Powerful, but not omnipotent. Right? In Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, death will lose its sting for the believer. Death will lose its sting. And yet, when we die, our bodies break down, dust to dust. Ryle remarks, so terrible and painful is the corruption of the body when the breath leaves it that even those who love us most are glad to bury us out of sight. This is hard to see. And yet Martha is judging things by her natural senses. <laughs> She's holding Jesus to what can be perceived by her eyes, and smelled by her nose, and understood by history. Right? She had seen death and decay before, and she assumes that Jesus is bound by those things as well. He's, 
he's bound by death, right? Remember her saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. While he was alive and sick, you had power, but now he's dead. There's nothing you can do. Her statement is more unbelieving than believing. Death has won, she assumes, and therefore the Son of God is impotent to do anything about it. Now, how often does that mindset plague you? How often do you struggle with that mindset? It's often for me, isn't it? It's often for you, brothers and sisters. We assume God does not or cannot work in our circumstances. He cannot or will not work in our circumstances. And so at that point, we just take matters into our own hands even before we've prayed, even before we'd asked him to bless our actions, right? We feel like we have to, to run our own race. And so we become deists. That's what we become. We become deists who think God is distant and uninvolved rather than near and mindful of us. We don't ask him to heal us or give us the needed faith to persevere through the difficulty of something because we think he will not. But Jesus taught us to ask and you will receive, didn't he? I mean, as Reformed folks, that verse scares us because we're like, prosperity gospel? You know, we're like, prosperity gospel. We can't possibly ask and he does it. That's not what that means. Ask and you will receive. Ask without doubting. And so we don't ask him to heal us. Um, We don't ask... God to give us faith to have another child. But Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Right? We, we, we lack the faith to work through pain another day, but Jesus says, ask and you will receive. We don't ask for faith in the midst of unanswered prayer, but Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Uh, We don't ask for chastity in the midst of unrelenting sexual temptation. Because God can't do that. I mean, God couldn't possibly do that. He doesn't want to do that. And yet, Jesus says, ask and you will receive. You know, you don't ask for tenderness of heart toward your wife and children. Because you think, well, he can't do that. But Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Patience in the midst of persecution, like, like yeah, I'm not going to ask for that. God the Father, though, delights to give his children good gifts, doesn't he? He delights to give his children good gifts, but he's not a pushover. He gives to us what is best, which is not always what we ask for, Okay. So it's not as simple as ask and you're going to get everything you've ever asked for. God is not a pushover. He's actually wise and he's a father and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he will give us only that which is good. He's he's amazing like that in his graciousness toward us. 
But Martha jumped to the conclusion that Jesus wouldn't or couldn't do what she desired in her heart. Don't approach God in your prayers in that fashion. Don't do it. That is to pray with unbelief. Right? What does Scripture say? It says, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. important thing to learn, and you will learn this if you're growing in Christ, is what to pray for. Right? You have to have wisdom to know what to pray for. Right? As we mature, we learn to pray less about our circumstances, or that our circumstances would change, and more that our hearts and attitudes would change in the midst of certain circumstances. Right? I mean, we find that when we're, we're young in the faith, we just like change this, God, change this, change this, change this. And as you mature and get older, you're like, that ain't going to change. My prayers have been off. God cares about me. He wants me to live by faith. He wants my heart to be engaged and depend upon him. And so then we begin praying, okay, God, put me in this circumstance and yet, may I glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in it. We'll care more about living by faith and less about living in comfort. Right? We desire to know about the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the faith and less about the riches we might, could enjoy in this life. So after Martha speaks of the stench in the four days, Jesus reminds her of what he said previously. He had told her, your brother will rise again. Right? And she's like, ah, okay, yeah, someday. Way off. So he alludes to that and says, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Then, they, this crew gets together. I don't know how many it would take to remove that stone, but they get together, they remove the stone, and those who did it would smell the stench. Smell the spices and the mixed with the decay, right? They would see the dead body. And they would finish their work. And at that point, after this is open, after... After um, it's visible and open, Jesus then prays. Notice he raises his eyes, not a posture we're used to. We as men lower our eyes because we stand before Almighty God as sinful men. He as the God-man raises his eyes as he prays. And he speaks these words out loud. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Every time Jesus asked, he received. I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Those words he said out loud too. <laughs> it appears that he had already prayed to his father, right? Because he says, I thank you that you have heard me. Right? So he's already prayed to the Father that, that Lazarus would come out alive. 
And the father has heard him, and then he states out loud that he knows that the father always hears him, but that he said that so the crowd that had gathered around him might hear and believe that he was sent by the father. First, well, a couple things to draw out of that. First, notice that Jesus gives thanks. Just notice that. He gives thanks. That's what he does. Very simple. I thank you that you have heard me. It's one of the primary purposes of prayer, isn't it? Giving thanks to God. It's one of the primary purposes of prayer. We are tempted to be selfish in our prayers and just ask and ask and ask and ask for things. The things we want, the things we need, that's what we major in. We seldom give ourselves to thanksgiving, which is a very pagan thing to do, right? The, the, very, uh, the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans 1 is that you can know somebody's a pagan by whether they give thanks or not. Whether they acknowledge God and give Him thanks. Okay, and so when we don't give thanks to God, we're just, we're being good pagans. Thanksgiving ought to be a constant practice of the redeemed soul. In everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks. It's God's will for you. Second, Jesus speaks out loud before others to provoke a response. He speaks out loud. He, he vocalizes this prayer in the midst of this awkward scene. He gives thanks to God in the hearing of the people so that they might believe that the Father sent him. Now, he's testifying to these Jews, many of whom had already said that he did his miracles by the power of the devil. Remember, they had accused him of doing his, his miracles by the power of the devil. Beelzebul, right? And now he's saying, no, 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 no. I do these things by the power of the Father, your Father in heaven. He's testifying that what is about to happen is the power of God, not the evil one. But I think there's also a simple lesson that we can draw from this. Speak about God before others. Speak about God in the hearing of other people. Simple little lesson, right? Hard to do. Because we're ashamed of the gospel. TikTok makes us ashamed of the gospel. Facebook makes us ashamed of the gospel, right? Try to provoke a response in the things that you say. Give thanks to God for this or that when you are about others who have no profession of thanks or of faith. Just say, Ah, thank God for this weekend. Uh, I'm praising God for the weather. (laughs) I mean just something innocuous. right? Do that at the workplace. Do that at the faculty meeting. Do it at the coffee shop. Do it here. Do it here. Do it to the unbelievers here. Do it to the believers here. Right? Do it here. Provoke me to think about God. I need it. We too often hold our tongues, don't we? We stifle our praise of God and it shamefully indicates that we on some level are ashamed of Him. And that ought not to be. 
It ought not to be. Sprinkle some scripture into a conversation. Attribute something that happened to you to God's work, to God's action, to His providence. And don't live according to the terms of the pagans who don't want you to engage on religion or politics. There's nothing else worth talking about. Right? And you can leave off politics. Honor God with your tongues. Right? Just honor God. Speak of Him. Very simply, I'm not telling you to to go out and explain to random people the doctrine of soteriology, the ordo salutis, right? Um, The doctrine of the lesser magistrates. I'm, I'm telling you to go out and say, well, I thank God that this coffee tastes so good. I mean, I really thank God. God God made our tongues, and isn't it wonderful that coffee tastes so good? Right, and so it's very simple to do this, and you'll find out if the Spirit's at work in somebody who overhears you, right? These are cues. How many times has somebody said something, they said, thank God for this or that, and you're like, yeah, are you a Christian? And it's like, yep, you know? And then you can just relax, you know, you well, you probably still should witness because there may be work to do. They may get to work on you. And so let's encourage one another in this. When you have, when you have been faithful, tell me about what you said and what the response was so that I have the courage to do the same. Tell me about the conversations at the July 4th family picnic that you have, Okay. Tell me about the conversations you have with strangers. Tell me about what you said and how it was not received well, but how you went home rejoicing that you were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Tell tell me about what you said to someone you work with. And so let's let's encourage one another in this, this simple work. Yeah, I mentioned the name of Jesus. And this is how it went down. You'll never believe how my boss responded to that. Oh, man. I better start looking for a new job. (laughs) Oh, well, now, after all of this, I don't know how many sermons in John 11, right? This is probably number six or five or something like that. We've now made it to the point where Jesus performs the greatest miracle that he performed in his life. This is the top. There is nothing that outdoes this. Yes, he he raised others from the dead, but not after being dead for four days. Right? And here, here he is doing this. He performs the greatest miracle of his life on earth. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He doesn't even say, in the name of the Father, come forth. You notice that? No, he acts in his own power. He does not touch him. He doesn't walk in there and touch him and and pick him up. He doesn't lay across the body as as Elijah did. He, He does not whisper an incantation. He commands Lazarus. 
He returns life to this dead man. He resurrects this man whose soul had departed his body. And I'm not going to stop and speculate how he experienced that. Stop and think about this. This is the Jesus Christ that we believe in. He had power to bring a man from death to life, and he does so with a command. Many liberal Christians want to explain away this power, and so they begin to pick away at the Scriptures. They reason that the Scriptures are lying to us when they depict this man doing these miracles. Right? They think that it's just made up. But those who do that, who reject the miracles, have so diminished the Son of God that He is no longer God. And if no longer God, then there is no reason to trust in Him. If no longer God, He's equivalent to Gandhi and Confucius and Muhammad and Ronald Reagan and you. He's that impotent. If you accept that Jesus rose from the dead, the very heart of the Christian gospel, the miracles done by him ought to be easy to believe. Easy. And if you don't believe them but cling to Christ as some kind of savior, you are so confused that that I don't think the Holy Spirit could possibly be illumining your mind. I just... It couldn't be. Those who are saved take the Scriptures as literal truth and as first-hand accounts of what actually happened in history. Anything less than that, and you as a mere man, use your reason to knock God from His throne. You will not be saved by your reasonableness. Right? You will not be saved when you, as Jesus, you will only be saved when you, when you as, as Jesus said to the crowds, believe that God sent him. Jesus is no mere dude. He's no mere example. He's no mere guru. He's no mere thinker. He's no mere teacher. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the life. And on this day some 2,000 years ago, by a word, by a command to Lazarus, he brought him back from the dead. From death to life, a heart that stopped pumping blood began to pump blood again. Adersheim, in his commentary on the Gospels, colorfully describes it. He says, one loud command spoken into that silence. One loud call to that sleeper. One flash of God's own light into that darkness and the wheels of life again moved at the outgoing of the life. And still bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face with the napkin, Lazarus stood forth shuddering in silence in the cold light of earth's day. There he is. 
And what Jesus did physically on that day, brothers and sisters, what Jesus did physically on that day, he continues to do spiritually to those who are dead and stinking in their sins and sinfulness. He still raises the dead. He still raises the dead and those who have been raised from death to life by the Spirit through faith know the wonder of that change, of that transition. Right? Back in John 5, Jesus had said, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Indeed, Lazarus heard that voice. As Lazarus heard physically the voice of Jesus, so too today those who are being called to his kingdom hear his voice and are escorted by the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit, to out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Out stumbles Lazarus. <laughs> out stumbles Lazarus. The man who had died, notice that description, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. He would be stumbling, unable to fully move his arms and legs, unable to see because his face would be wrapped, and, and yet there was Lazarus alive. And Mary and Martha had their beloved brother back from death. His life had returned to him just that moment, and he had heard the voice of Jesus say, Lazarus, come out of there. And he responded to the command of Jesus. And Jesus then tells those who are gathered there to unbind him and let him go. Now Spurgeon goes crazy on that, like spiritual analogy. And I'm just like, nah. That's nah, too much. He just literally means, you know, he needs to be able to walk. Unbind him. He doesn't do it himself. Jesus doesn't do it himself. But he does tell others to do it so that they can observe this miracle up close. Right? The flesh was restored. He was no ghost he was no other man or a different man. He was Lazarus as he had been four days earlier. The life was returned. The sickness was even gone. The linen covered healthy skin. And many of them would believe in Christ after they witnessed the body of Lazarus. And strangely enough, and, and this is what I would love to know and love to see, we'll, we'll have to ask Lazarus and Mary and Martha someday, but strangely enough, we don't receive any description of Martha and Mary's response to their brother's resurrection. The Holy Spirit didn't want us to know that. Nothing. Imagine their joy, though. Imagine their awe. Imagine them just, their mind being boggled, and they're like, what is going on? Right? And Lazarus, what of him? We don't receive any report of what he went on to do and say after he was resurrected from the dead. Nothing. 
There's a myth that Lazarus didn't smile for the rest of his life, having left the glory of his soul's presence with God. Life was now a downer. It's a myth. Continual disappointment. We don't know. Uh, Edersheim says, what happened afterwards, how they loosed him, what they said, what thanks or praise or worship or the sisters spoke, and what were Lazarus's first words, we know not. And then he says this, and better so. And if God's inspired word does not contain a description of this phase of Lazarus's life, how much more ought Christian publishers refrain from selling books from people who claim to have been to heaven and back? Good grief. The one time it happens in Scripture, there's nothing about it. And these punks who want to make money do it. It's disgusting. Don't read those books. Don't believe a word of those books. Read the book. And it says nothing about Lazarus. We get a little bit from Paul. He's caught up into the third heaven. You know, whatever that means. But he's limited in what he can report about it by a thorn in the flesh. Right? And so... We do, though, read about the response of the crowds. And once again, we see that Jesus was appointed for the rising and the falling of many. Some believed, and some scoundrels scooted off to go tell the Pharisees. And some profited from Christ spiritually, some profited from Christ temporally, getting some praise from the Pharisees who hated Jesus and wanted to end his influence. But we return to that next time. Right, we'll, we'll finish chapter 11, Lord willing, next week. But let me end here. This passage is one of the clearest proofs that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Okay, this passage. At one moment, he weeps in anguish over sin and death and the departure of his friend. In the next moment, with a word, he raises a man from death. In his weeping, he is gasping for air. Right? And, and in his miracle, he causes breath to rush into the lungs of Lazarus. He would, in the days, of head, days ahead, sweat blood as he bore the sins of the world. And in this miracle, he commands coagulated blood in the body of Lazarus to soften and begin coursing through those veins. We confess along with the Orthodox Church through the ages that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And we've seen it in this passage. And that reality is the most amazing truth in all of history. Nothing compares. Nothing at all compares. Don't be surprised or troubled by the miracles. The Son of God took on the likeness of human flesh and lived among us. This is the hope of the Christian faith. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen? Amen? Amen.